According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 4, although we're branching out from there to other areas of the New Testament, looking at principles of prayer tonight. We've covered what our Lord taught through the four Gospels. We covered what James had to say in the epistle of James. And uh, tonight we're dealing with Paul's uh, principles of prayer, followed by John in 1 John, and we'll deal with that. Then we'll move on and talk about the consequences of having such a prayer life, how the peace of God surpasseth all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So there's consequences to having a prayer life according to His design. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, uh, we have a, a season upon us where not only are folks traveling, but also there's uh, allergies and sickness. And we have quite a few folks that are under the weather. So bless them tonight and restore them to, to full health. Might they be with us at the next available opportunity. In the meantime, Father, we thank You that we have the MP3 recordings and the website and the capacity to stay uh, stay current, stay up to date on all the teaching, even if even if they're homesick and, and uh, coughing up something pretty terrible. So Father, uh, give you the praise and glory for what you've designed and, and call upon your faithfulness tonight to, uh, for those of us that are here that we might have the eyes of our understanding open. Father, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We do want to take a few minutes for question and answer. It's become our habit here lately on Wednesdays to uh, take 10 minutes or so for some Q&A. I had one by email. I'll take that one first, and then uh, we'll take the the live questions here from uh, the studio audience. Let me find where I put those. This uh, actually came in from uh, Wes Beck's brother in uh, Iowa, Michael Beck. Text in. If I can't find it, I'll just take it from memory. Here we go. I have a question regarding the interpretation from 2 Corinthians 9-7. I have heard that cheerful should be interpreted as hilarious. My question is this, uh, is hilarious the correct word? And if so, could you explain what the word means in context? So, um, yeah, this is, uh, we taught this in our 2 Corinthians series. It's, uh, this is the cheerful giver verse in 2 Corinthians 9, talking about grace and grace giving. Uh, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Each man must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And uh, so many principles that come from this, it's important, I think, that we recognize each one of them, that it's never the will of God to operate under compulsion. He's created us as volitional beings, and He wants us to serve in all capacities uh, within our, our free will. Um, particularly with respect to grace giving, God loves the cheerful giver. Now, the reason why he's heard it translated hilarious is because the Greek word underneath cheerful is indeed uh, hilaros, and uh, the Greek is where we get the, the English uh, as a transliteration, really, or the, the etymological source. And so, uh, yeah, hilaros, uh, there's a, a noun, a cognate noun to hilaros, it's called uh, hilarates. Uh, it's the only place in the New Testament that we have hilaros, so we're kind of 
limited in our hilarious studies. It is, uh, you can call it hilarious, and in, in, in really, I've done that before, I'm very guilty of that. When uh, we've had word studies uh, from like Balo and, and Hooper Balo, Balo, do you remember? Because we were studying Hooper Balo, and so I was talking about the, the hyperbolistic Christian way of life. And I would use the phrase hyperbolistic just because it helped us to remember Hooper Balo. And uh, okay, it's not exactly the best way to, to render it, but if it helps, if it sticks and it helps you remember, then uh, then you can take it from there. So hilarious might not be the best translation, and it's really not. Uh, I think uh, hilaros speaks more of a, a more of a, a tranquil happiness, a, a, the the cheerful happiness that's more on the the low the the low key side, whereas hilarity is more of a boisterous happiness and you know a knees slapping guffaw kind of hilarity, and that and God doesn't want us to be you know knee slapping guffaw when we give, but He does want us to be cheerful about it, to have a heart that's just receiving joy on the basis of giving, because it is more blessed to give than to receive. So, um, anyway, it's, it's a case where yeah, the etymology is kind of useful if it helps you remember. Uh, but it may not be the best translation when it comes down to it. So I, I prefer cheerful rather than happy, or rather than uh, uh, hilarious. There is also uh, hilarates, there we go, which is also used one time in Romans chapter 12. And then specifically it talks about with cheerfulness, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And this is kind of neat too because it also mentions giving in the verse so you might think that it's a parallel with 2 Corinthians 9, and yet uh, the hilarity is not attached to giving, the hilarity is attached to showing mercy. So uh, in Romans 12, 8 where it says, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality or simplicity, uh, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so this is where we developed the doctrine of mercy showing in our study on spiritual gifts. And so cheerfulness is... Uh, the way that noun is rendered. That's just a cognate noun for the, for the adjective cheerful. All right, so that's the email question. I hope that's sufficient. If not, uh, you can certainly follow up with another email. How about that? So uh, other questions tonight. Is the microphone, you got the microphone ready? Okay, so we're ready for any questions. If anyone has anything you want to ask, something that was not clear on Sunday or something. All right, we'll come over here. Carol has a question tonight. Okay, so in Hebrews, we were talking about the also in Hebrews 7.22 and 8.6. Mm-hmm. And you talked about it, it delineates between now, what's going on now, what's going on later. Um, and God told Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But it also was um, sit at my right hand until you rule in the midst of your enemies. Mm-hmm. So how can both of those two be true? It has nothing to do with the also thing. It's those. Oh, re- with respect to the enemies. Yeah, you're either in them or you're ruling over in them. And it, how could they sit? Well, okay, good. Yeah, so making your enemies a footstool for your feet does not end their existence. And it does not remove them from your proximity. But it does place them into a position of subservience places them, if you think about where your footstool goes when you prop your feet up. So yeah, they don't stop to exist. In fact, he'll keep having enemies throughout the millennial reign. He's going to be surrounded by enemies of the Gog-Magog rebellion. And so 
Even the very fact that he's told to rule with a rod of iron, that, that right there tells you it's not a pleasant rule. There's, there's obstacles and difficulties and, and things like that. I was looking at the footstool thing as they're done. Yeah. Right. So that's where I'm at. Thank you. Uh-huh. No, good question. I appreciate that. And that also about the what we have now versus what we have coming up is featured in, in Hebrews 7, it's featured in Hebrews 8. It's also language that's consistent with that in our description in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with respect to ourselves being ministers of the new covenant, being adequate as ministers of the new covenant. Because there are several verses there that talk about our, pre, our present adequacy serving one another, loving one another, ministering one another. So we don't consider anything as coming from ourselves because our adequacy is from God. Our present adequacy, the adequacy we have right now is from God. And that's the kind of encouragement we all need. We don't, I mean, what's more encouraging? You will be adequate someday or you're adequate now. Yeah, being adequate now I find very helpful because we're serving now. We're, we're, we're ministering now. So having a present adequacy now that's from God and not us, that's, that's great. you know. But then he builds on it and he says, who also makes us to be adequate as servants of the new covenant. And so that also takes it beyond our present adequacy and is looking forward to the millennium and the fullness of time for our future adequacy. Yeah. So anyway, that's, I, I wanted to stress that on Sunday because uh, so many people really get wrapped up in new covenant being now. And, uh, and even if they don't want to go full replacement, they still want to kind of inject us into Israel's promises. And, and it really just comes down, I think, it's just a simple misunderstanding. They read um, in Jeremiah 31, 31, they read the blessings of the new covenant. And then they have a category error in their logic because they ignore the fact that it's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah they ignore the fact that it's not like the covenant he made with their forefathers. But then he talks about, I will put my law within them. I don't know how they think that's true today, but okay. And then he says, um, I will put my law within them on their heart. I will write it and I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not teach again. Each man his neighbor, each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Again, I'm saying, well, where's the church in all of this? And then he says, for I will forgive their iniquity. And, and people go, oh, 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 that's me, right? My sins are forgiven. This has to be talking about me in the church age, right? So I'll forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And they go, well, there you have it. The church is in the new covenant because our sins are forgiven. And it's just a category error, see? And I think they, they take that, they take our Savior statement in the, at the communion table that this is the blood of the covenant and, uh, and it just leads to that, leads to that misunderstanding, so... Anyway, I wanted to stress that the future nature of the, uh, the covenant position that we're going to have as servants, not recipients, but servants. I do something similar too when I talk about the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And anytime I hear somebody, you know, because the Bible says, blessed are those that are invited to the we- wedding supper of the Lamb. And when I talk to believers, of course, every believer I talk to is a church age believer. But when I talk to church age believers and they're talking about, ooh, getting that invitation, I say, you're crazy. We're not receiving invitations, we're issuing invitations. We're the bride. And we're not receiving invitations. And they go, oh, I never thought of it that way. You know, So it, I think it helps if you keep Israel different from the church and you keep the, the mediator as different from the parties to the covenant. Jesus is the mediator, he's not party. He's mediator between God and man. So uh, anyway, that's, that's helpful, I think, to, 
to talk in those terms. So. All right, so good question on that. What else tonight? Any other questions, comments, criticisms? All right. Well, thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. Last chance going once, going twice. I'd be a terrible auctioneer. I I give people extra chances. All right. Well, then let's go to uh, Philippians and just fix our bearings once again. We are in a prayer passage. And Paul likes to do this. You'll notice something as you look at the list of verses that we're seeing. Uh, when, when Jesus talks about prayer, you get a, a large section. You're going to get a, a stretch, right? So put the slide back up here. When Jesus is teaching on prayer, you're going to get a range. Like in Matthew 6, you're going to get verses 5 through 13. In Matthew 7, you're going to get verses 7 through 11. You're going to get a, a sequence of verses whereby he mentions a number of prayer items. That'll be a bit different when we get to Paul, because Paul is the kind of guy that'll put four prayer words in the same verse. right? He'll just pack it in there and say, okay, now unpack it and, and have fun. So that's what he does here in, in Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so we've taken the time to, to look at all four of those terms for prayer. They're all nouns, they all have cognate verbs that go with them, and, and that's essentially what we're surveying now under point E, because we're giving kind of a, a distillation of uh, really 289 uh, verses, putting them all together here in this in this kind of summary. So when Jesus taught on prayer, he had several longer stretches uh, in various uh, messages. James, we looked at his uh, teachings there in James 1. The blessings we have, if we have a deficiency, we just ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. And God gives generously without reproach. And that's the best thing at all. Because we're not asking a question or asking for provision and somehow dreading the consequences like, ooh, you know, what, uh, what's he going to say? Uh, he's going to provide and without reproach. And we can be thankful for that. Also in James chapter 4, James chapter 5, important principles. If you're asking with the wrong motivation, uh, then you know God sees through that. And he may very well answer no to the request and yes to the motivation, or yes to the request and no to the, mo- uh, the motivation. There's really four combinations there for how God can answer prayer with respect to what we're asking for and our heart attitude behind why we're asking for it. We've, we've discussed that in previous classes as well. All right. Then moving on to Paul, and as I'm glancing at it, I believe we covered the first two of those before we ran out of time. So I remember we were talking about women with their head covered in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then, uh, and then the prophetesses, and then praying with your mind and praying with your spirit as well. We want to have our mind engaged in our prayer life, which is what he deals with there. Those chapters are perhaps the most difficult to deal with because he's talking to Corinth and he's dealing with issues that we don't have to really deal with because we don't have tongues, we don't have prophecy. Those temporary gifts are now complete. We don't have prophetesses. If uh, there's a Jezebel woman that comes in here and claims to be a prophetess, uh, then I am not going to copy the Thyatira pastor and I'm going I'm to remove her immediately because I know she's not a prophetess. We're done with the charismatic age of the early church. We're now in the mature age of the completed canon of Scripture. Nevertheless, we don't, uh, those verses are still in our Bible. They're still profitable and, and edifiable as we, as we study them in their context and in their appropriate setting. Moving on though to Ephesians, and this is very applicable, more so every passing day. 
I believe the intensified stage of the angelic conflict only gets worse and worse uh, as the as rapture gets closer and closer. And so uh, we struggle not with flesh and blood. We, we get this. This is our armor of God passage here in Ephesians chapter 6. And when it says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, that's a, pa- it's a passive imperative. Really, it's be strengthened. We can't make ourselves strong, but we can receive His strength as we grow in the Word of God and as we go to Him in prayer. All of this is going to be done through prayer, which might not be obvious at first because we go through the different items of the armor, but then when it all gets uh, put together there in verse 17 with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, then we have the instrumentality mentioned in verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. So here he goes again, He's combining these prayer words like he did in Philippians 4 6. He's combining prayer and supplication, the same prosuke and, uh, and deasis that we had in Philippians. We have it here. Although it's, I don't know why the Lockman Foundation decided in, in producing the New American Standard Bible that they decided to call this one prayer and petition in Ephesians 6.18 when they called it prayer and supplication in Philippians 4.6. It's, it's nonsensical to me because they're the same two words. It's the same two grammatical constructions. But, oh well, they didn't ask me. So here we have it. Prayer and petition. Prosuke and deasis. And then pray, prosukamai, at all times in the Spirit. And we have, of course, the, the urgency for this. We don't want to stop. We don't want to cease. It's pray without ceasing. And the thing is, which you've probably observed as well, uh, when you stop doing something, you get out of practice. You get rusty. You get sloppy. You forget how. And then uh, all of a sudden, then the testing ramps up, and you're not ready for it. You're not in that mode. And so uh, better off if you stay in a prayer mode anyway, uh, then uh, you just take it in stride when the, when the testing ramps up. So pray at all, all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert. With all perseverance and petition, there it is again, the deasis, perseverance and petition for all the saints. The fact is we never run out of things to pray for because prayer is more than just us. Prayer is for all of us. Prayer is for personal needs, the corporate needs of the assembly, and as many folks as we, uh, as we have to, uh, to pray for. And so we have the blessings there. And then he goes on to say, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me. Now, when has Paul ever had a hard time opening his mouth? <laughs> when has Paul ever had a time finding something to say? It seems like he's always got something to say. Um, nevertheless, boldness. Utterance may be given to me to open the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. And so, you know, um, how, what can we say with respect to this other than um, from all appearances, Paul's a guy with no trouble opening his mouth and yet he asks for help. He asks for prayer. He says, pray for me. And you start to wonder, well, what are those circumstances that would cause Paul to close his mouth that he's uh, asking the Lord to, to overrule? All right. So we have the principles there. And I think it's useful to, to work your way through the armor, work your way through the details of this, to recognize that all of us have a soldier function regardless of what our gifts are, what our ministries are, wherever God places us in any assembly. Uh, if that's that assembly is one that teaches the Word of God is going to be one under conflict. So you better have your armor on and be ready to, uh, to stand uh, in your place with uh, your fellow soldiers and to do so prayerfully. That's what uh, the essence of that is dealing with. Alright, Philippians 4.6 won't return there because that kind of started this whole thing. 
Colossians 4, verses 2 and 4. Colossians 4. And really, um, as a nice follow-up to uh, what we talked about a while, or I put it in a newsletter actually, we were talking about wives and husbands and children and fathers and slaves and uh, the different dynamics here of, of uh, our ministry one towards another. But then we get into the masters in one, and then it says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So just like with Ephesians, Colossians is in perfect harmony here that prayer equals uh, being on the alert. It equals uh, situational awareness, that you're not caught by surprise, your eyes are open. Whereas if you're not prayerful, um, like uh, any boxer or any fighter, you know, if you, if you don't see it coming, I don't care how tough you are, if you never see the blow coming, it could just knock you right flat. It could knock you because you weren't ready for it. Didn't see it coming, weren't expecting it, just hits you out of nowhere and down you go. The toughest guys get, get dropped because they, they don't see it coming. And uh, when, when prayer is, is spoken in Scripture as being our mechanism for being on the alert, for having our eyes open, that gets my attention. So devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. It's the same thankfulness that we have in Philippians 4, 6, that it has to be the attitudinal prerequisite to all of our prayers and all of our supplications, that attitude of thanksgiving. Um, the one word that's unique here in this passage, though, that we don't have of Philippians is the idea of a devotion. What are you devoted to? And uh, this is uh, well worth consideration because I think we all have devotions and different things. We have things we say we're devoted to, but clearly we're not. We have other things that we deny that we're devoted to, but clearly we are. The testimony is a devotion is something that you sacrifice other things for. And so if you don't sacrifice for it, if you could take it or leave it or easy come, easy go, that's not a devotion. A devotion means that when, when, when push comes to shove, uh, it's clear to you what, what gets pushed and what gets shoved, right? Because you have certain things you're devoted to. If you're devoted to your family, if you're devoted to your wife and your children, if that is a true devotion, then that helps prioritize things when uh, you know, the boss and the career and other things are coming along and, and uh, they want you to sacrifice your family life so that the, the business can turn a profit or whatever it is they're doing there, see. And, uh, you know, how many folks make that compromise? Or how many folks say they're devoted to their wife and kids, but really they're devoted to work. They're workaholics. They're devoted to the job. And, and it comes down to when something gets sacrificed, so something else can get pursued, that tells you where your devotion is, see. And so, uh, you know, if someone's maybe possibly devoted to something like, oh, I don't know, Scrabble perhaps, or a, a recreational pursuit, and then you start to wonder, okay, or golf or bowling or, I mean, whatever, whatever your thing is, okay, I think you cross a line at a certain point, and, and you know, whatever it is, and then you realize, wow, I've got you know, I got sixty thousand dollars invested in this. It's not a hobby anymore. I mean, you've you've kind of gone into something there. So um, I just say each one of us has to evaluate before the Lord what is what are our devotions. And prayer is supposed to be a devotion. So if you find that it's kind of the last thing on your agenda and you run out of time, and well, I'll get to it if I can get to it, that's the wrong perspective. Prayer should be first if you're devoted to it, and then other things uh, as you have time 
can then follow. So devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. So it's similar to what he said in Ephesians, that he would, his mouth would be open, with boldness he could preach the gospel. Here is for a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I should speak. And uh, you might notice as he's recommending prayer for himself, uh, because he's obviously devoted to prayer on their behalf, and one of the things I recommend too um, for folks, and depending on their testing and what they're dealing with, sometimes it's very useful to just stop what you're doing and take a month off. And say, you know what? Give yourself a break for a month. Say, you know, this is December, January is coming up, or you know, pick a month and say, starting on the first of the month, never mention yourself ever again in any prayers for thirty days. You know, and just pray for others, pray for uh, anybody but you. You know, six billion people on the planet—that's a lot to pray for. Just everybody but you, and then and don't worry about you because you've got brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're going to be praying for you because I'm going to tell them the same thing. And so as you're focusing on other people instead of focusing on yourself, you actually learn a lot. And you actually learn through bearing other people's burdens uh, kind of a, a perspective and a sense of, of uh, involvement and it's a, it's a marvelous thing. You also get more things to rejoice over. You know, if, uh, if you find that you're kind of limited in the things you can rejoice over because you only limit your prayers to yourself, well then that minimizes the things you can rejoice over. But start praying for a hundred believers, a thousand believers, and you find you're multiplying the, the things you can rejoice over because all kinds of believers are having answers to prayer every day of the week. And you're learning about all kinds of things that, that are worth rejoicing over. And it's not so myopic. It's not so wrapped up in the, in the uh, I think, the Elijah situation where you just kind of think you're the last guy standing. And uh, you forget how big the Lord is and everything He's doing in other places. So that's... Uh, kind of a summary there on Colossians 4 verses 2 through 4. Then we get uh, political. We, we have some prayers for presidents and authorities here. First Timothy chapter 2. And uh, this can be fun if you, <laughs> if you read it the way most people think about it, you, you end up misreading the, the chapter. Um, so don't do that. Read it for what God says, okay? Because uh, it says, first of all then, remember it's a devotion, so it comes first. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, and these are the same expressions we have in, in Philippians, plus an extra one we weren't even introduced to in Philippians. Uh, but entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. And this is where subjectivity limits people because they only pray for the presidents they voted for, they pray for the, the political leaders they like, or they don't pray. Or if they do pray for the other side, it's usually for their swift removal from office, you know, something. Psalm 108, let his days be few and let another take his office, things like that. It's a prophecy of Judas Iscariot, it has nothing to do with American politics, but people like to quote it. For kings and all who are in authority. Why? So that. Why? And it's not uh, what you might think. It's not uh, you know, the GDP of the nation or the economy or really um, it could include that but the fundamental issue is 
What is our freedom to worship Jesus Christ? What is our freedom to, to raise our family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? So um, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And that's what it comes down to, see. Now I would prefer, you know, free market capitalism over communism, but the verse doesn't say what economic system we're living under. It says, if the governing authorities are such that we are not hindered, we are not hampered from our freedom of faith and, and raising our, our families, I mean, to lead a tranquil and quiet life. That's, that should be our ambition. Make it your ambition to lead a tranquil and quiet life. So be ambitious to be quiet. Is, is a, if it seems oxymoronic, it's a beautiful uh, oxymoron in the New Testament. We may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And uh, so to that extent, I do think uh, freedom is better than totalitarianism. I think capitalism is better than socialism as far as dignity is concerned. But godliness and dignity, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so really the purpose for freedom is the freedom to proclaim the truth. To, to lead unbelievers to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to lead believers into the Word of God whereby they can function as adult sons and daughters. And so this is what we have. And I would also add to it, let me wrap this up here in a moment, but then add to it the purpose for nations and boundaries and the times that are given there in Acts 17. I think that's a vital message too. So uh, don't let me forget that before I move off this slide. Um, but here it is, for kings and all who are in authority. And uh, that's, the, that's the purpose for our prayers. And then uh, further down in the verse, um, I, therefore I want the men in every place. And a lot of times when the Bible uses men, it's anthropos, it's mankind in general, it includes men and women both uh, as far as humanity is concerned. Not here. This verse is quite specifically the male gender. Remember male and female, he created them. So the male gender, plural, men in every place to pray. And that's probably the, the, the biggest issue there too. You could have uh, you know, 100 ladies prayer meetings and, and try to put together a man's prayer meeting and realize there's a challenge that's, uh, that's there in front of you. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. If you think about it, what a blessing that is too. As far as uh, the like-mindedness that comes, the fellowship that comes, to be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There's nothing like prayer that, that, that causes that to happen in uh, the different ways that you join with those. Even if you don't pray out loud, you just pray silently listening to somebody else pouring out his heart. You know, pouring out, I think of Gary Williams praying for his daughter all those years, or Doug praying for his daughter. I mean, a lot of us pray for daughters. <laughs> and uh, But you know, you just you join in those prayers and you, you're a part of those prayers and before you know it you're you actually it becomes your burden as well related to the things that you're that you're lifting up and uh <laughs> when we used to have 6 a.m. prayer meetings that was that was a, back in the day and some guys would come to that and then they go from prayer they go to work uh from there and and uh, they said, you know, it really makes a difference because we were praying for their boss and praying for the workplace and praying for... And they said, it's, how hard is it to develop mental attitude sin against your boss when you started the day praying for him? You know, well, there's a side effect for you. So start the day praying for your boss and then uh, it, it helps you later on in the day when he's being kind of a jerk. <laughs> All right, so there's uh, chapter 2. Also in chapter 5. 
I haven't forgotten, we're going to get to Acts 17 after this, but before I leave 1 Timothy, this is uh, with respect to the widows indeed. Verse 3 says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. If any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and make return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. And that's uh, been our pattern here. We don't want to step on family business or step on uh, the other things that God has designed. And so if there's children and grandchildren, then uh, that's obviously the, the preeminent place for that kind of care. But if they, are, if they don't have children, don't have grandchildren, don't have family, if they are widows indeed, then my deacons and I are very serious about what our role is for, uh, for that kind of ministry. Now she who is a widow indeed, who has uh, been left alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in, and here it is again, entreaties and prayers night and day. The same two words that are translated prayers and supplications in Philippians 4.6, they're translated prayers and petitions in Ephesians 6.18, it's translated as entreaties and prayers here in 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. Night and day. And this is uh, the marvelous ministry that, uh, that the widow can have in, uh, in that capacity. All right. Now I mentioned Acts 17. Let me get to that before we move on to John. And I think it really ties in well with the prayer for kings and all who are in authority. What are our political prayers supposed to be like? How do we pray for America? How do we pray for, I mean we sing God bless America, but why would he? You know, we, we pray, we want, we want the, uh, the grace and the mercy and we want to have a, a pivot of believers that we can be salt and light in our community. But boy, we just look at the darkness and think, man, why are we still here? What is the purpose for, for keeping us here? And uh, in Acts 17, Paul's giving a, a sermon on Mars Hill, and one of the things he talks about is uh, the God of creation, and they didn't have a clue. They, they had a huge pantheon of gods and idols and everything else, altars. And uh, to make sure they covered all their bases, they even made one to an unknown god just in case uh, you know, there was one they overlooked and didn't want to offend him. So to the unknown God. And so Paul says, hey, let me tell you about the God you don't know. You can know Him. He's nearby. He's knowable. And He wants to be known. So Acts 17.23, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands. And so we needed anything since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He's the origin of everything. He's the sustainer of everything. He provides. Even those that hate Him are still breathing His good, his good air as they walk his, his earth. And He made from one man. He made from one. King James has uh, one blood, if you're fond of the 1611 King James. He made from one blood, or one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So we're all part of the same human race. We're all Adamic until we get saved. Then we're no longer in Adam, we're then in Christ. And we have our grace provisions there. But just in earthly terms, as far as the politics goes, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So while we all are human and we all have the same descent from Adam, we're at the same time we're, we're classified into our nations. Every nation every kind, if you will. And so the nations are designed as well to live on all the face of the earth. 
having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now that's a verse to to chew on. That's a verse to, to consider. Appointed times, appointed boundaries of their habitation. So God's sovereignty has a plan for all of this, and He's given all judgment to the Son, so it's been delegated to Jesus Christ. But in the plan of the Father, set forth from Alpha to Omega, there's a design. And the design for nations includes their times, when they start and when they stop. <laughs> okay? Their times, the rise and fall of, you know, uh, Gibbon. Edward Gibbon wrote the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, right? Well, God wrote the rise and fall of everybody. <laughs> every empire, every nation, every the, the times of all people groups and the boundaries of their habitation. See, and we're dealing with that now. Here's Satan trying to blur boundaries. Why do we have boundaries? Why do we need a wall and all that stuff? We should just have one, one happy world and everybody goes wherever they want to go. Well, that's not God's design. God's got a design for the nations including their habitation, where they habitate, <laughs> okay? Where they, you know, and, and where should they be? You know, where should the Americans be? Oh, I don't know, how about America, okay? And the French, where should they be? The Germans, where should they be? And so, yeah, and, and you know, I get it. We get mocked, we get ridiculed, we're too simplistic, we're too naive, you know, because they, they would love to tell you that the world's more sophisticated than that, the issues are more nuanced and whatever. But, you know, if you think how God designed it with every people, tongue, tribe, and, and nation, you got the classifications that are there. And, and it's not coincidental that, uh, you know, if, if you're Spanish and you speak Spanish and you're from Spain, that that's probably a part of God's plan here for your appointed times and the boundaries of your habitation. And if you're going to emigrate, I mean, that's also biblical. Ruth, when she decided to stop being a Moabitess, and uh, she said, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. There is a, an assimilation that happens when you stop being what you used to be because you're in a new place now and you're identifying, in, in Ruth's case, with the God of Israel. And, uh, and man, what a blessing she had to be a part of the line of Christ, to, uh, to be uh, an ancestor of David and, and Jesus and the blessings there. Anyway, the, uh, the sovereignty of God in, in superintending all this I find uh, a blessing to consider and then to be praying for so that our prayers are lined up with God's prayers so that they're consistent with, um, with what we're told about in 1 Timothy. Now in 1 Timothy we're told the purpose clause there was we can live a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. But here it's, it's similar to that. I think it's, uh, it's, it's uh, compatible with that but he talks about the, uh, that they would seek God in verse 27. And so the boundaries and the purpose for the boundaries and their continued existence or non-existence, all of that seems to be centered on whether or not provision is made for evangelism, for God consciousness, for the teaching of, of, of doctrinal truth to born-again believers, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. So God is nearby, He is knowable, and uh, the, the blessings there, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Even when He had a covenant nation and He had a place of His presence in the Shekinah glory, He was still, to the uttermost parts of the earth, He was knowable. He was nearby and knowable if there was positive volition to God consciousness to know the truth. So different aspects there.
All right. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are his children. Curious how Paul quotes a pagan poet there and just takes a snippet. doesn't validate everything that the pagan said, but he does take a snippet and say, you know what, this is actually true and here's why. And he uses it to illustrate the point that he's making. All right. So when it comes to prayer, particularly our political prayers, if, uh, if he wants uh, you know, America to succeed and continue, that'll happen. If he wants to end us tomorrow, he's free to do that. That's his good pleasure. Uh, there have been six flags over Texas. Maybe number seven's on the way. <laughs> Whatever else is going to happen next. But that's God's good pleasure. Okay? And, and as I watch the uh, prophetic plan unfold, as we see the table getting set, Tommy Ice likes to talk about table setting for eschatological events. And, and uh, there's no prophecy that has to happen before the rapture, but we know about it, a lot of things are going to happen after the rapture. And since we start seeing the, the table is set leading up to that, we're wondering, well, what's, what's left to prepare? What's left to, you know, really? Is there a whole lot left that has to happen before the tribulation can start being unveiled? Doesn't seem to be a lot left, not with Israel back in their nation. Um, you know, maybe we'll see a rebuilt temple before the, before the rapture. Who knows? There's, there's not much left. But we see the table set. And we know that come the tribulation, Israel stands alone. Israel stands alone. They sign the bargain with Antichrist and they seem to have no other friends. And uh, in, in when all the armies are gathered against Israel, what, what allies do they have there? See, And so, uh, yeah, I'm happy that we are friends with Israel. I'm happy we moved our embassy. I'm happy that we're supporting the Jewish people. But biblically speaking, uh, that, that can't last forever. That's going to stop at some point that uh, even the United States will turn their back on Israel at some point when, uh, when that day comes. So, all things to think about. Alright, these are Paul's teachings on prayers and then John's teaching. Now John doesn't give us a ton, not in the Gospels, not, well, we, we did look at Jesus' teaching there in, in, in the Gospel of John, but in 1 John 5 where he talks about having the request that we have from Him. And we, we did reference this a little bit earlier with respect to the vocabulary of requesting. When we talked about iteo and, and, uh, and itema, the vocabulary for request, let your request be made known to God. And so that vocabulary is used here. And uh, so let's just review and, and touch on what we've dealt with. But um, verses 14 through 16 about confidence confidence we have before Him and that if we ask anything according to His will He hears us. And James talked about that. You have not because you ask not and you have not because you ask and you ask with wrong motivations. If you're asking for something outside of His will uh, God's not a genie in the bottle obligated to give you three wishes or anything else you demand. Uh, and, And just saying in Jesus' name Amen is not an incantation that binds God to your will. If you're asking out of His will, He's not going to give you anything out of His will. But if um, you're asking according to His will, if you're abiding in Him, which John 15 talks about, uh, then whatever you ask, He's going to provide because you're abiding in Him, you're in His will. If, um, and then it says, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests, we have the asks, the very things that we're asking for are the things He's put on our heart to ask. And so those very requests which we have asked from Him, He's given us those requests so that they're on our hearts so we can lay them back before Him. 
And uh, you ever wonder why there's certain ideas that keep locked in your mind, certain desires, certain... He will give you the desire of your heart because He's shaping your heart. He's shaping your thinking according to the Word of God as you grow, as, as we all grow in, uh, in His will. And so those are the kind of things we can have great confidence in. And then there's things we don't ask for. I think verse uh, we ask and then don't ask with the sin and the death and, and the issues here. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will uh, for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. And uh, sometimes that's the hardest thing in the world. Um, praying for someone that you think is, is headed that direction. And then when you know they're headed that direction, do you stop praying? At what point are you praying contrary to the will of God? It's, uh, it's a difficult thing because your heart wants to keep praying. But he says, well, don't make a request for this. Uh, with this sin leading to death. And it's, it's interesting at, at what point, and I don't know that it's, um, you know, we have to answer before the Lord with our personal convictions, but Jeremiah was told, quit praying for these people. I'm going I'm to take them off into captivity. And you might remember, he kept praying. Yeah, <laughs> Jeremiah just prayed harder, even though God told him to quit praying. And uh, if that's a pattern for our application, it may be related to this. But the things we ask for, the things we don't ask for, and why. Well, when God gives you that request, then uh, then offer it right back to Him and say, thank you, Father, for this sweet-smelling savor. And at the same time, if, um, if you come to notice that, wow, here's somebody that hasn't really crossed my mind in six months. I haven't met. Here's somebody, I hadn't thought of this person in eight years, right? And then out of the blue, Ethel comes across this person and goes, wow, did you know they're still alive? I didn't know they were still alive. How about that? And why does God do things like that, you wonder, and say, well, okay, um, thank you, Father. <laughs> Hadn't really been praying for him lately, but uh, I, I realize they're still alive, so I'll start praying again. Thank you. Uh, but those are the kind of things, too. And uh, to just be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, sensitive to, um, you know, there, there might be a reason. If you're, if you're awakened at three in the morning and all of a sudden you're thinking about somebody, well, why is that? So, uh, I don't know. Just take it as an opportunity to say, okay, Lord, not sure why I woke up thinking about this, but here it is, and pray about it, and then hopefully go back to sleep. But what, uh, when they're on your mind, He's giving you the ask, He's giving you the request. All right, now, consequences. Let's look back at consequences now. Philippians 4, do you know the effect? There's a cause and effect. A cause and an effect. Because the prayers from verse 6 are causative for the consequences of verse 7. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And uh, I've spoken to people and, and I've had folks heartbroken over the fact they think this verse is a lie, that it's not working, they don't have this kind of peace, uh, they don't know why they don't have this kind of peace. It's just not working. Uh, well, they're not obeying verse 6. And if they don't have the, if they're anxious. Verse 6 told them not to be anxious. And so if you're going to disobey verse 6, why do you think the consequences are going to come in verse 7? You were told to stop being anxious. But in everything, make your request known. 
So stop being anxious, tell God what your request is, and then see what happens here in the consequences. Okay? Whether you get what you're asking for or not, the endeavor, the prayer endeavor is going to strengthen you. The prayer endeavor is going to keep you near to the heart of God, as uh, the hymn says. All right. So consequences. <clears throat> prayer and supplication, both with thanksgiving, are to be causative mechanisms. Understand that God acts in consequence to our prayers. Prayer does not bind God or limit His sovereignty, but cooperates with God's sovereignty to be the instrumentality through which God works. Now there's a lot to unpack in that. I just want you to think about it and and deal with it because there are folks that that hate this concept, so much so that they deny it. So much so that they, they say, no, 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 that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. But passage after passage after passage clearly says it is true. And so then if it is true, how do we wrap our minds around that? How do we, and, and part, uh, same thing with, with foreknowledge. If God knows what we need before we even ask, why do we ask? He knows we need it, if, but why do we ask? Well, He tells us to ask. And then He gives in response to our asking. And you say, well, that's, that's, uh, that doesn't make any sense because He knows we're going to ask ahead of time. Why is He waiting for us to ask if He already knows? Anyway, maybe you haven't had these discussions. I've had dozens with lots of folks on this very issue, on God's foreknowledge and why does He use prayer as a mechanism? Does that not limit Himself? See, well, no. Not when He Himself had designed us to be volitional, when He Himself had designed us to pray in this way. This is, uh, this is the outworking of His plan. So let's start with First Kings. And I like this uh, because it's simple. It's also uh, something that I think uh, folks can, can read for themselves and and then uh, they can take this story and chew on it. First um, Kings three, and uh, maybe one of the most famous prayers anywhere in all the Bible. Solomon's about to become king, or he's the new king, and God comes to him and says, "What do you want?" Okay, and you talk about a, a you know rubbing a genie lamp or something. You were talking about anything goes, you know. Here's the God who can do anything that asks me what I want. So um, anyway, the, the reply here is interesting. So without reading the, uh, I don't know, maybe it's been a while since we've been here. So verse 5, And Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. Notice he starts with grace. He starts with the loving kindness. And all of our prayers have to be oriented in grace or they're not really thanksgiving prayers. So you've done all this for my father David and you've reserved for him this great loving kindness. Here it comes again. The chesed loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. You've given him a son. Remembering, of course, that he's the firstborn son after the son that died with the, uh, the adultery with Bathsheba. Okay? So David the adulterer and uh, the firstborn son that died, but God the God of grace that turns cursing into blessing, the next son uh, is Solomon. So when David and Bathsheba then repent and get oriented to doctrine and start to grow in the Word of God, here comes Solomon. 
And here's the line of Christ, and here's blessing for the Jewish nation. And it's all grace. It's grace in David's generation. It's grace in, in Solomon's generation. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. And really, he's got enough wisdom to pray this in, in the humility that he has. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people, who are too many to be numbered or counted. And that too is a mark of humility. Remember, David had a great sin when he was numbering the people and uh, involved in the, the pride issues there. So give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? That's his prayer. He's been put into an office and he's trusting that God's going to equip him to execute that office faithfully. And uh, things there. All right. Now verse 10, notice it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. What does that tell you? There is a stimulus and there is a response. The stimulus is the prayer. The response is pleasing. God was pleased. Okay? And that's the language of it. Now we can get theological here and debate, well, what does that mean? And is God really pleased? And is God, He is an emotional God and the Scriptures bear that out. Okay? And it really causes quite a, quite a stir when some people want to defend a, a thing called impassibility that God cannot be affected by anything that we do. See? Because they kind of box themselves in a corner when they define affected as changed. And since immutability means God can't be changed, they then conflate those concepts and they say, well, if God can't be changed, then He can't be affected by anything. He can't be emotionally affected or He can't be moved. He can't be stimulated as we think of it. Okay, And sadly, I think the folks that have gone there in uh, conflating immutability or change with affections um, I think that's the, that's where they've gone off the rails. So anyway, we'll let that go for tonight. Um, but if you're with us in Norm Geisler in our systematic theology, that was a big area of disagreement that uh, that God uh, does experience the emotions that He des- describes biblically. That He has anger, that He has joy, that He has pleasure, and that He takes pleasure in righteousness or this prayer. It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon has asked this thing. So God said to him, notice now, because you have asked this thing. You notice that? It's causative. It's in response to what Solomon asked. Never mind the fact that he knew ahead of time that would be the case. Yes, foreknowledge knows. Even though foreknowledge knows, he still, when it happens, he still draws the pleasure from the experience of it as it happens. Does that make sense? So because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself. I mean, what are the first two things you and I be asking for? Okay, <laughs> you know, ooh, anything I want? Here we go. All right. I will be the greatest Scrabble champion in the history of the world. And... All right. You have not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart. So there has not been no one like you before you, nor shall anyone arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked. See, no notice? It's the consequences of what he asked for. So God gives 
above and beyond what we could ask or think. And uh, so many blessings there. I will also give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. But now notice, if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. Sadly, this doesn't happen. Sadly, Solomon gets wrapped up in the the politics and the women and the power and the the things there, and his wives take his heart away and becomes an idol worshiper at the end of his life. Yeah, I think he dies the sin unto death when it comes down to that. But there's a causative aspect. And we're going to see more of these concepts in other places. Causative aspect. When Moses prays, for example. When Jesus prays. When Abraham prays. And uh, other examples like that. Alright, so prayer does not bind God or limit His sovereignty. Clearly, he remains sovereign. But it cooperates with God's sovereignty to be the instrumentality through which God works. So he designs this. He absolutely designs this. A couple of other examples. And these are all New Testament examples. So if you think the Solomon one doesn't quite relate to us, I think it does. But 2 Corinthians 11. 11, thank you. All right. Again, it's the, it's the language of the text. And uh, some would say, well, it's just language of accommodation. And he expresses it in a way that we can relate to. Well, even if it's language of accommodation, it still is analogous to the reality of what God's doing. And he's, he's operating in conjunction with our prayer life. That's undeniable. All right, context for verse 11. We'll pick it up with verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. So Paul was not hiding any of his struggles. He wasn't quoting the doctrine of privacy and telling you to butt out and don't pray for him. He wants prayer, okay? He wants all the prayer he can get. And uh, we have it here. Uh, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. This was his time in Ephesus. This was his time for three years. I think he was in prison there and he wrote Philippians there and Colossians with an Ephesian imprisonment rather than a Roman's imprisonment. Doesn't want them to be unaware of that. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Sometimes he has to break you down and get you that low so that you're so utterly dependent upon him. And I love the the tenses of verse 10. Who delivered us, past tense, from so great a peril of death. And he will deliver us, future tense. He on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. Again and again and again. God keeps giving, right? You also joining, and here's the point in prayer, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. Joining in helping us through your prayers. One of the things I hate hearing is when a believer says, well, I can't do anything for you, sorry. I mean, I, all I can do is pray. You know? Oh really? That's all you can do? All you can do is pray. How about that? How about moving the sovereign hand of the creator God of the universe? I, I'd say that's quite a bit. Okay? Don't minimize that. Don't say all you can do is pray. Start with that. 
Anything else you do earthly beyond that is just icing on the cake. You also joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf. If you keep the prayer request to yourself, then you're going to sing solo in the Thanksgiving chorus, which is not a chorus if it's solo, but you know what I'm saying? But if you multiply the prayers and you get a whole team praying for you, then the Thanksgiving chorus is a chorus. It's a multiplied voices that can sing. And, and again, the instrumentality of it is undeniable. Thanksgiving may be given uh, by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of the many. Through the prayers of the many. They are, it's the mechanism. It's the vehicle. It is the consequence. God provides in consequence to our prayers. And if we decide to be slugs about it and take our time getting around and asking for it, well, don't be surprised if God decides to be a slug about it too and just get around, wait to get around to providing for you until you wake up and engage that prayer life the way it's uh, supposed to be. All right, I'm, I'm a minute over, goodness. All right, we'll pick up here uh, Sunday morning, Lord willing, rapture pending, and uh, then we'll talk about something we can't understand. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something inconceivable. Uh, I'm going to communicate the incomprehensible, the uh, peace of Christ that surpasseth all understanding. So um, we'll have some fun with that. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for opening our eyes to prayer. Help each one of us, Father, improve our prayer life. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.